This is the All About 80s Music Podcast with John Mysick and Steve Ojello. Hey, this is Steve Ojello, and I'm here with John Mysick. Steve, how are you? Doing great, John. Some of the music, fashion, and attitude of the 80s were influenced by what took place 20 years earlier. Today, John and I talk about some of the most prominent artists of the 60s that had a resurgence during the greatest decade, some which you can call dad rock artists. So, John, the 60s were such an important period in music. Rock and roll started in the 50s, and by the 60s, it was in full swing. We saw huge bands breaking like the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, Led Zeppelin, the Doors. Then in the 80s, we saw a resurgence of some of these groups, as well as solo careers by some of their members. And a number of them were middle-aged by this time, but they were still rocking. We also had a lot of 60s cultural influence penetrate parts of 80s culture. If you remember in high school, a lot of kids would have Doors posters and Janis Joplin posters on their walls, and they would dress up in hippie garb. So looking at all that, I would love to get your initial thoughts on how 60s artists penetrated their way into becoming some of the best dad rock artists of the greatest decade. You know, Steve, we we have talked more than once on this show about the 80s being this decade where anything weird and wonderful could where anything weird and wonderful could happen and often did. Um, lots of barrier smashing, lots of strange things ending up on the radio and and, and on MTV that would not have otherwise ended up there. Um, and the same thing can be said from artists uh, who charted 20 years previously. Anyone from The Who to, um, you know, members of Led Zeppelin to the Moody Blues uh, to even, you know, John Fogarty all found their way onto MTV in the 1980s, um, all enjoying chart success in their own way. Uh, you know, Steve, we are both old enough to remember going into guitar stores and hearing aspiring guitarists wood sawing away on uh, the riff to Stairway to Heaven or playing Who tunes on, uh, on Gibson Les Pauls that they're trying desperately to convince their parents to buy for them. It was the 60s were not too far into the rearview mirror. They were, it was the classic rock of our day. Now that Nirvana is the classic rock of a of a different generation, just a, just a kind of a strange time um, with some really unusual records being made by some of these artists. Not artistically what you would think they were going to go for, but some just went for it and ended up with some fascinating results. It was a great decade for a lot of artists of the '60s to come out big in the '80s too. And who's the first artist on your list to talk about? You know, for me, the first person, the first '60s artist I ever sort of really noticed. Um, on MTV was the former Led Zeppelin vocalist, Robert Plant. Um, I just remember this very strange video taking place at a gas station sort of in the middle of the night with this very desert-sounding guitar. You know, Plant was out of sorts um, when Led Zeppelin ended. He was he was trying to find different things to do with his, his life. And, and even Steve, I found out uh, he even planned to ditch music entirely to pursue a career as a teacher in the Rudolf Steiner education system, um, going so far as to be accepted for teacher training. But he ended up st- sticking with music. And it was another 1970s star, Phil Collins of Genesis, who encouraged him to stay with it. He took Phil Collins up on his advice. Steve, who knows how music might have turned out differently um, if Robert Plant, the original rock and roll animal, had ended up uh, a schoolmaster. Fascinating, fascinating to contemplate. Thank goodness he kept on going. And, you know, it's funny because when we were kids in the early 80s, we were really unaware of the magnitude of witnessing in real time Robert Plant and Jimmy Page's solo career. 
Spurs. I mean, they were both fresh out of Led Zeppelin. And um, it's funny because Phil Collins actually played on five of the songs of Robert's debut album, Pictures at 11. And Cozy Powell played on two of those songs. That first album boasted two hit songs, Burning Down One Side and Pledge Pin, which were good tunes. But for me, it was 1983's Principle of Moments album, which was the better album of the two, his second release. MTV had a lot of these videos in their rotation, and it was nice to see a young, skinny 35-year-old Robert Plant embracing the new video format. That song, Big Log, was released first, and, yep. and that was that was the song where he was in like that old 50s car going into the gas station in the desert. That's right. And then um, In the Mood, which followed it, and, and In the Mood was a bigger hit song, and it's one of those songs that have been stuck in my, my head for decades. Yep. That chorus, you can't get out of your head. Shaken and Stirred was released in 84, and that brought the hit Little by Little, which, if you remember, that was another great song. The thing for me about Robert's solo career in the 1980s was that he really pushed the envelope of rock pop music using drum machines and keyboards and getting away from the mainstream legendary rock that he was known for pioneering. Um, 1988's album, Now and Zen, if you remember that one, that was the tall, cool one out there. Heaven Knows was the first single pop song that really fitted well into the late 80s, packed with keyboards. And it actually reached number one on the Billboard album Rock Tracks. And, and that was so well deserved. But, you know, what was, what was weird in the midst of those very sort of forward looking albums, Steve, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out the fact that in 1984, she took a complete artistic left turn and dropped the Honey Drippers. That's right. With good, you know, with, with good rock and, at midnight, which was a straight up '50s rockabilly album, um, you know, dropped straight dropped in the middle of these really adventurous um, solo records. So full credit to Robert Plant for taking artistic risks. I think. So in 2007, his biggest hit came with Alison Krauss on their album "Raising Sand," "Gone, Gone, Gone," which was produced by T Bone Burnett. And they, they actually was so big and so popular that they wanted him to go back in the studio and record the second album. But he did a, a total left turn and just joined a band called, what was it called? Band of Joy. Band of Joy. And um, did, did some shows with them, did an album with them, and then wound up doing the uh, second album with Alison Krauss a few years later. So he's made these left turns in his career and, just, and, has, uh, and has regrouped with Led Zeppelin and played with Page a couple of times down the years as well. But they've never fully regrouped and made another album. It's always been sort of like for one-off special live performances, including Live Aid in 1995. That's right, with Phil Collins. On drums. And, Tony, and Tony Thompson, I think, is on, on drums as well. In the That's tour. right. Well, I want to talk about Jimmy Page because, again, in the 80s, we were unaware of how lucky we were to be witnessing Rob Plant Jimmy Page's solo careers in real time. Jimmy's first musical endeavor was scoring music to Charles Bronson's Death Wish 2 movie released in 82. And then, of course, in 85, the very commercial rock song broke from The Firm, which was a band he put together. And you remember that really well. Yes, I did, because I actually saw them live in Hartford, Connecticut. Awesome. And Tony Franklin. Tony Franklin, uh, Paul Rogers from Free on lead vocals. Chris Slade, uh, who went, later went on to play with ACDC on the drum, on the drum kit. Yeah, a, a veritable uh, 80s supergroup. It was a supergroup, and they, went, they all went on to do a number of things. Tony Franklin played with 
tons of rock outfits in the years that followed with this fretless bass. Chris Slade, the easy, recognizable drummer from that video, um, went on to play with ACDC from 89 to 94. So definitely a super group. Great song, commercial rock hit, big for them, on MTV all the time back in the mid-80s. In 1988, Jimmy released uh, the Outrider album, and although the cover art has become iconic, the really the only hit song from that album was Wasting My Time. If you remember that video, the video is on all the time mm-hmm. in the late 80s, and uh, it was Jimmy prancing around, sporting his Jimmy Page moves, and I always felt the song was sort of out of place in the late 80s because it was kind of juxtaposed against all the hair metal that was going on. Yep. Then. Well, he didn't have that moment where he went out to do that uh, duo project with uh, David Coverdale of Whitesnake as that, well. You know what? And, page. Mar- Marty Wilson Piper of The Church, who is as snooty as he is gifted, once referred to David Coverdale as David Cover version. Oh, that's terrible. But I, I will tell you what, after hearing Coverdale like now three times on the Rock on Tours podcast, oh, he's I, awesome. I take back every bad thing I've ever said about him because he is gracious and funny and smart as a whip. And he's just a joy to listen to on that show. He, he, he tells the best stories. You can't not be like enthralled in his. In his yeah, he, he was on the most recent installment just this last weekend. And I was I was dying. I was like, I was. I had gone to bed and was trying to and was trying to sleep and and didn't want to wake up Mrs. Mysick and I'm stifling laughter um, as I'm as I'm laying there because was, I was I was hobbling. He casually throws in the f word a lot when he speaks, but he does it like so eloquently that it's hilarious. He's like, "Oh, Gary, darling, I didn't definitely do this," and yeah, it's just it's it's fabulous. So anyway, back to Paige and, and back to back to the firm. I, I feel like Steve, that was like one of a piece of like. Super groups we saw in the 80s. You had your Asia. That's right. Best of all. And and Jeff Downs and Steve Howe and and John Wetton. Like pieces of ELP and Yes and King Crimson all mushed together into one. That's right. Rock, pop, rock band. You had your GTR with Genesis and like four other guys no one had ever heard of, and they made that one record and then promptly vanished. Um, You had uh, Emerson Lake and what Emerson Lake and Powell at one point as well. So that's right. And then they they spawned into uh, the band Three, which with my friend Robert Berry Mm -hmm. uh, for one album, which was fantastic. It's yeah, and you know what? That's why the '80s were so great because you had all these supergroups flying around. We were so lucky, and and you can't you couldn't do that today. You, you couldn't even do that in the 90s, really. It was a great decade for all these 60s groups, you know, members of Yes, members of King Crimson and Genesis, just kind of intermingling with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and they put out albums, and, and a lot of them did shows. What a fantastic time to be in. It was, just, it was, again, it was a fantastic time. It was a very weird time. There's part of me that kind of cringes um, at some of those records retrospectively now. Oh, but, yeah, it was, all, it was all sort of part of the... Uh, part of the era i guess and you know i can still tell my friends 40 years later hey man i saw the firm just like and when i told you that you're like shut up no you did not like yes one concert we all waited for radioactive and then everyone like went out and got a drink and that went once they heard our work here's finished we can go that's impressive that you saw them i mean and it was it was a big rock show too because Paige came out and played a protracted guitar solo and did the whole violin bow thing that he's so famous for chris slade played a long drum solo and i may be hallucinating this but i'm pretty sure the drum riser moved (laughs) 
I'm sure it did. Uh, and and Tony Franklin came out and played uh, came out and played a little burp gun fretless bass solo because everyone had a fretless bass in those days, and they threw an octave pedal and a ton of chorus on it because they all wanted to sound like Pino Palladino. And God love him, he did. Who's your next artist on the dad rock list? I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed by this one, quite frankly, Steve. You know, somehow within 20 years, the band that gave us No Secret and White Rabbit somehow gave us Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. Um, I'm talking about the band, the Acid Rock, High Dash Ray Legends, Je- Jefferson Starships, slide into the M-O-R-E Ana of Starship. You and say it like it's a bad thing. It's a, it, you know, I, I kind of got a soft spot for Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. I admit it. It's a cute song. They didn't even write it. Diane Warren and Albert Hammond wrote it. Albert Hammond, the father of Albert Hammond, who went, went on to play in The Strokes. I will take Starship to task forever because they, re, they are responsible, Steve, in my mind, for the single worst song of the 1980s. Oh, please. Come on. No. In you the, always talk about that song. I and- we Everything is wrong about that sort of like late 80s overproduced high sheen pop is all crammed into one horrendous package in that single. So so you and I have talked about the fact that we yeah, built crappy drum sounds. You've got thump, like thudding synth bass. I disagree with you on that because I think it's one of the best songs of the 80s. It's cheesy, but it's awesome it's, it's undeniable it's uniquely that, awful. it's uniquely awful and and wang chung's everyone have fun tonight those two it songs makes me want to cut my hair with a cheese grater i'll tell you what <laughs> to you those those two songs were as bad as the mom. they are the apotheosis of bad 80s pop when everyone was making was making these horrible sounding drums making these horrible drum sounds horrible bass sounds and they were all shooting like remember this like those sepia toned split screen videos Right. Like everything was going wrong. And you talk, you know, I've talked about where did the 80s go screaming off the rails? Right. It was that horrible Chicago single. You're the inspiration? No, it was after your, it was after Peter Zatera left and the other guy came in. Oh, geez. We don't talk about that. That's like, that's that's like that is where the 80s. That's like, like Van Halen 3. That's like the Godfather 3. Went screaming, where the 80s went screaming off the rails, man. I mean, I will, you know, I'll throw it out there because I think nothing's going to stop us now is a catchy little bit of MOR pop and you know mannequin's an adorable movie it's one of those sort of like disposable 80s b movies but it had kim cattrall in it so you know i throw it out there for the purposes of discussion so you're going to talk about nothing's going to stop us now but you can't talk about we built this city and i I can talk about we built this city and just say it's horrible i am not not saying that nothing's going to stop no nothing nothing's going to stop us now is a mortal deathless pop it's a perfectly it's a perfectly acceptable little pop trifle. But you think about a band that went from again from It's No Secret and White Rabbit. Right. Oh, they they were in the city. Like, what the hell happened? They were so they were a different band in the eighties, just like Yes was a different band in the eighties. At you know? least in Yes though, you had a readily recognizable prog rock outfit. Yeah, but but it was Trevor Rabin came in, Steve Howe left, and it, it was totally different. They went 
top 40. It was a different it band. Really wasn't AOR. They had, you had Trevor Horn behind the boards. They were an AOR band for sure. That's right. And, and so Starship did the same thing. And that's why they kicked Grace Slick out because it was like Mickey, Mickey Thomas was. Or she might, she might have left of her own accord because she was so horrified. She, was so, <laughs> she hung in there for a while. You got to. She, she just couldn't. She just couldn't. Be, I remember her daughter. Um, oh, yeah. I was in love with her. And she was, was a China. TV. Something, something was China, on MTV. China, China, on, on MTV. Right. Oh, and I loved her. And she wore she was She's a adorable. big Duran Duran fan. Yes. Big Duran Duran fan, and she wore Duran Duran shirts on MTV all the time. And I'm like, really? she was. I was so in love with her. She was great, and she was, was it, awesome. Was it, was it the restraining order? Is that what made it? No, happen? no, none of that. I, I, I kind of had the crush on her, like you had on Debbie Gibson. So, all right, fair enough. Sweet and honest, but I will, I will not give you any grief. Oh, so, okay, so nothing's going to stop us now. Yeah, great song written by Diane Lauren. Great, great guitar solo. One of the best guitar solos of the 80s that I've mentioned before on an episode by Craig Chiquito. Craig Chiquito. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and, and so what else do you have from Starship from the 80s? Well, I, that's 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 what I got from <laughs> from from them. I think from there, though, I'm going to pivot to another Bay Area band who actually sort of made a graceful transition from the 60s to the 80s. That's the Grateful Dead uh, oh, with wow. Touch of Grey from their album In the Dark. You know, I will get by. I will survive. You're picking these bands now based on one great song that they had in, in the greatest decade. But I will spoil You know, how, how the 80s were awash in one-hit wonders. Why couldn't these great bands in the 60s also True. be one-hit wonders in the 1980s? True. Um, the great, you know, the, but the dead, had, that was, that was, the thing with that, though, I think it was like a weird lightning strike. All of a sudden, they showed up on MTV, like, at All Stone, like, you know, and then they had this one song, and they promptly went back out and did their three and a half hour long concerts. It was a good song, and I think it was sort of like very Grateful Dead y. And again, it's just one of those instances, Steve, in the 80s where the heavens kind of opened and there was space for the Grateful Dead all of a sudden. And that's true. Close, and that was the end of that. And that song allowed them to pick up like a whole new generation of fans that started mm-hmm. going to their concerts along with the dads. Yes. In the 60s, you know, the dads that are now in their, their mid 40s and the 80s who would go to those shows and that was still going hippie strong that we remember you know you would always see these 40 year old guys in the 80s like with their with their tie-dye shirts you know and you knew what they were all about you know yeah, so. so so my my high school cross-country team we've gone these long road trips and we had like we had exactly two cassettes one of them was born in the usa mm-hmm. the other was the grateful dead's greatest hits wow so by the end of my freshman year i knew both of those records backwards and forwards it was, it was a little insane. And, you know, that's that's really a good representation. That band is a good representation of how the 60s really penetrated the 80s. And we, we saw a resurgence of those artists. I had in- buddies who, like, became deadheads as 80s, like, in, in the 80s in college and, like, followed them on the road and had, like, suitcases full of bootleg cassettes. It was yeah. Really it, they were fully it, it was the whole thing. And, and the doors came back. I remember, like I said, in my opener, there were doors posters on everybody's walls. The doors kind of three quarters opened, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> doors of perception. <laughs> yeah, it... And, you know, and that brings me to, I think, the ultimate dad rock band of the 80s that I consider the ultimate dad rock band, which is the Moody Blues. Because to me, as a kid in the 80s, watching them, right, you had these group of guys that came out in the 60s, right? They were 20-something in the 60s. They had huge hits with Knights in White Satin in 67 and Tuesday afternoon in 68, right? So you fast forward to the 80s. 
and they were middle-aged guys making appropriate music for the fans who grew up listening to them. So the music was very age-appropriate. If you remember, Isaac, in 1981, they released a huge song called The Voice, which reached number one here in the U.S. And that song was such a great representation of the late 70s and the early 80s. It was sort of their launching pad into the 80s, that song. What made it so great, the special sauce in that song for me, was Patrick Mraz, the famed Swiss keyboardist. He played mm-hmm. bass in a bunch of other bands over his career. But he did these wonderful keyboards, these 1980s keyboards on that song that were a little ahead of their time. Yes. And it was a good foreshadowing of what was to come the decade. And he really helped define the moody sound of, of the 80s with that song. You know, and, and Your Wildest Dreams was just a mega song for them. Uh, a U.S. top 10 hit, number one on Billboard's Adult Contemporary chart. A Billboard Video of the Year Award. Uh, their Other Side of Life LP, produced by Tony Visconti, who produced David Bowie. Um, he also had them in their portfolio. You know, this is a kind of sentimental look back at their uh, at their life in, uh, in England in the 1960s as kind of a beat band and then becoming uh, mature adults. I can still sort of see that video in my mind's eye. Yeah, no, that that video got a lot of play on MTV and VH1, and that song was on rock radio. It was the big one for them. Um, you had dads and uncles and middle-aged dudes everywhere just jamming out to it. And I remember, like, as a kid, hearing it on the radio, it, it wasn't the coolest thing on the on the airwaves, but it was hard to change the station when the song came on. It was just so damn good. And that song actually allowed them to tour in the mid to late 80s where they had, quote unquote, three generations of Moody's coming to their shows. Yep. So it, it was huge. And the follow up to that song, The Other Side of Life, mm-hmm. that song peaked at number 11 and it was a good song, but it was it was it was really 80s sounding with a lot of tronic drums and synths and it fit in actually with a lot of the music that was happening in late 1986 with songs like Venus and Papa Don't Preach and Danger Zone and When the Going Gets Tough, you know, so it it really fit in well with the music that was happening. So dad rock on steroids, Mm -hmm. total 1980s. And um, I give that band props for adapting to the times, but really keeping the songwriting strong. You know, Steve, I feel like all roads eventually they'll lead back to the Beatles, because here we are sitting here in 2023, uh, just about a week or two out from the release of allegedly the final Beatles single, Now and Then, a um, song that was a John Lennon demo that the three of the four surviving Beatles, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr, hammered together into a new single using some AI technology. All four Beatles released solo records. In the 1980s, John Lennon gave us his final proper studio LP in 1980 uh, with Double Fantasy. Paul McCartney released a brace of solo records in the 1980s of varying degrees of quality and consistency. There's Tug of War, there's Pipes of Peace, there was uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street, the soundtrack for the film that he made. Uh, George Harrison gave us Cloud Nine, his comeback record made with Jeff Lynne um, of ELO that opened the door to the Trevor Wilburys. And, of course, Ringo Starr released two albums of his own Stop and Smell the Roses in 1981 um, and Old Wave in 1983 produced by Joe Walsh. If you've never heard of those two LPs, Steve, don't worry, nobody else has either. 
but I'm sure I'm sure some of those songs will be playing uh, live when Ringo goes out. Um, with his All Star Band, yes. Yeah, he he's been playing with the All Star Band since we were in high school. So I mean, you got to give props. Various, to it's Ringo plus whoever he can round up at various permutations. He always, he always gets the, the top guys though. A lot a lot of top guys, a lot of top musicians. So it's always a good show. It does. But, but I tell you. We weren't obviously old enough to see the Beatles, so we got Paul and George and John and Ringo in their solo careers in the 80s. And when, when you look at Paul's body of work throughout the greatest decade, he gave us so many hits during that time, like Coming Up, Ebony and Ivory, Take It Away, The Girl's Mind, Say, 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 No More Lonely Nights. I mean, it was just a massive amount of hit songs we were lucky to witness. And George released Cloud Nine in 87. I think the one before that was in 82. He wasn't... Was somewhere in England, his uh, John Lennon tribute LP, I think is what that one was. Well, well you know what? He released Gontropo back in 82 as well. Oh, uh, okay. So, and, and that... Right. But, but, you know, it's funny. That album kind of flew under the radar. All those years ago, it was released in 1981. And then Gontropo was in 82, and then he didn't do anything for a while. And in 87, he came out with Cloud Nine. So, but you know what's funny about his single off of the famously produced Jeff Lynn album? Got My Mindset of You, it was a number one hit, but it was actually a cover song, which I had no idea about in that time. Yeah. So, an old 50s team that he uh, repurposed. It's so funny that you you knew about it because I for me it fit right in with when we were fab and a lot of his other songs because like he George Harrisoned it yes. you know so well mm-hmm. that it was just his song as far as I was concerned. And I'll say this, Steve, for as much stick as Paul McCartney got for a lot of his solo work in the 1980s, um, it's important to remember that in 1989 he came out with Flowers in the Dirt with Elvis Costello. Um, and Elvis Costello really gave him, and they both sort of profited from their association, association with each other. Because uh, also in '89, Costello put out Spike, which has McCartney on it and has the wonderful Veronica on there, among other songs. Flowers in the Dirt is a really great piece of McCartney pop. He really profited from his uh, association with Elvis Costello and rescued him uh, from a string of sort of middling solo records at, at that point. That's right. That's right. It, we, we got a lot of Paul in the 80s, and that was great. A whole lot of Paul. A whole lot of Paul. All right, Steve, I'm going to go out with one more, and it seems like, you know, if we're going to go out with one, it might as well be a swan song. I'm talking about Eminence Front oh, uh, yeah. by The Who from their final 1982 studio LP, It's Hard. You've got that uh, unmistakable organ progression. You've got that guitar riff from Keith Townsend played on his... Uh, Thunder Stratocaster and those big thunderous drums from Kenny Jones and the vocal from Roger Daltrey. You know, if you're going to go, you might as well go with uh, with Evidence Front, for my money. And that was the song, because the video was so prominent on MTV, that was the song that turned a lot of kids our age onto The Who. Guilty. Right. A lot of us are. And so that was sort of our introduction to The Who. And the 80s were a really great time for the who i mean when you think about eminence front that came out in 82 but you 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 scroll back to 1980 pete townsend put out the empty glass album that had rough boys on it let my love open the door the face dances yeah yeah face dances from 81 don't let go of the coat you better you bet you know, and then in 85, you remember the Give Blood song? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was a little crazy, but, you know, and Face yeah. to Face. 
some white some white city album. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a great time for the Who. So so they fit really well into the dad rock category because you had these guys who were really big in the '60s mm-hmm. and then just blossomed in the '80s as well. Handy uh, handy trivia point for the completists out there, Steve. Do you know the rhythm section on those great Pete Townsend solo records? Um, I can only guess. Who is it? Wait for it. Mr. Tony Butler and Mr. Mark Brzezicki, mm-hmm. later of the country fan. Wow. Yeah. The music journalist has spoken. That's fantastic. They were studio players. They were this like polished studio team for hire in London in the early 1980s uh, before Stuart Adams swallowed them up for, for big country. They were on Let My Love Open the Door and they were on Slitskirts. And you can even see the video, I think, for Slitskirts and you'll see Tony Butler and Mark Brzezicki playing bass. Uh, Tony Butler playing bass and Mark Brzezicki playing drums, pardon me. So it was good to, to, to talk with yeah, you. Know, they were a great, but that band, I love that band. They don't get enough credit. A great bunch of players. They put out some pretty fantastic records. I could wax eloquently about big country for a while. All right, Steve, that's all the time we have for this week. It is fleeting. It is too short. Um, I'm John. Like, comment, share, subscribe. I'm sorry it took us so long. Life is funny that way, but we'll be back much, much sooner for the next installment. And this is Steve saying, until next time, keep it cool, keep it awesome, and keep it totally rad.